0: Well, good morning. I'm happy to uh, be able to speak to some of you who are still worshiping in your homes and some who've returned to experience worship together. I know that collectively we're all longing for a time when we can be back in one place to celebrate. There's a lot that we've learned through this challenging time. Some things I suspect will, will change us in how we live our lives and even might impact how we do church. I watched a webinar this past week that talked about how some will see what's happening right now as an interruption and just choose to go back to the way things were, while others will see it as a disruption that will challenge us to see new ways to see the church and ourselves. And God surely uses every experience that we face as an opportunity to keep becoming more what he longs for us to be as his church. Well, for the remaining uh, four weekends that I'm going to be with you in this interim preaching role, I've chosen to focus on what I think are some vital relational needs that should be a part of any church's DNA and that will hopefully speak into some of the cultural moment that we're in. Back around the turn of the current century when uh, technology was dramatically continuing to explode, John Nasbitt uh, published a best-selling book that called attention to some of the varied impacts that technology was having upon human behavior. Now, while technology is designed to help free us up from routine work, the unanticipated consequence was that it was actually insulating us from human interaction. Nesbitt's book was titled High Tech, High Touch, and it argued for the importance of relationships in the workplace or or actually in all of life. Unfortunately, life was becoming more like high-tech, no-touch. Advances in technology were leading to a diminished experience of our emotional connectedness. Now, while Nasbit applauded the benefits of technology, he argued that it was coming at the high price of squeezing out the human spirit. Technology was becoming uh, an intoxicating addiction, but often it was a very unsatisfying one. Now, I had two more decades of technological advancements since Nasbit's work, and things haven't gotten any better. They've only gotten worse. We're we're glued to our screens, we're isolated from many vital relationships, and often we're desperate for any real and intimate sense of personal touch. The church can even neglect the vital importance, importance of, of nurturing relationships. Several years ago, a church in Atlanta included this option in its automated answering machine on the phone said if you're calling about a death in the family press 9 now, a few years ago some funeral homes even started offering drive-through viewings there are a lot of different states instead of of having to enter an actual funeral home during a scheduled time you can you can drive by and you can view the body from the comfort of your own car some include background music and a drop box in which you can deposit condolence cards one funeral home owner described this added service in this way. It's a it's a convenience thing, he said. Mourners don't have to deal with parking, and you can sign the book outside, and the, and the family knows that you paid your respects. Or I came across this news story describing how a funeral home in Michigan actually does it. Thank you for choosing McDonald's. I can help you. Whether it's getting food, a cup of coffee, or making a deposit withdrawal, you can get a lot of things without leaving the comfort of your car. That now includes paying your final respects in a drive through window. Curtains open only when sensors underneath the pavement recognize the weight of a vehicle. Basically, it's just technology creating an image for you to have a visitation from the pres- presence of your car. In a society always on the go, a private moment to grieve. Mike Householder, Associated Press, Saginaw, Michigan. Well, somehow, that that private moment to grieve that the news reporter talks about doesn't feel too comforting to me. We've struggled during this time of global pandemic from being isolated from each other, and necessity has driven us to use technology to stay connected, hopefully in some healthy ways. I'm grateful that a virtual connection is better than no connection. That's how I'm talking to you today, but ultimately... Technology is never fully satisfying. That's why some are experiencing worship physically together today. Well, in light of all this relation-starved time, I thought it would be valuable to to remind ourselves about some key relational phrases that we find again and again in the New Testament. They're they're often called the one-another passages. Words like encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, accept one another, serve one another, and the list goes on. We're calling this short series Church.Community, and the goal was to amplify the vital importance of building more high-touch relationship into an increasingly high-tech, isolating time. We're going to begin with this vital relational need to encourage one another. Uh, First Thessalonians 5.11 puts it this way. Encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you're doing. The message expressed the thought in this way. Speak encouraging words to one another. Build up hope so you'll all be together in this. No one left out. No one left behind. I know you're already doing this. Just keep doing it. When you were a kid, did you ever have somebody play a trick on you by secretly sticking a sign like this on your backside, hidden to you, but in plain sight for all around to read? Kick me. Now, even if it's just done in fun, it's, it can still be a cruel trick, because who likes to be a target, even if it's a good-natured one? Now, i admit there are times when a good kick in the pants might do a lot of us some good, maybe even be a little well-deserved, Please don't look around at anyone in your living room or a comfortable six feet away from you in the worship time today. Someone has said that a pat on the back is only a few vertebrae removed from a kick in the pants, but it's miles ahead in the result that it brings. Don't kick me. Encourage me. Someone said we live by encouragement and we die without it. Slowly. Sadly angrily. Opening his second letter to the church in Corinth, Paul wrote about how God so wonderfully comforts and strengthens us in our hardships and trials. And why does he do this, he asked? So that when others are troubled, needing our sympathy and encouragement, we can pass on to them this same help and comfort that God has given us. That's in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 in the same vein a preacher named david jeremiah paints this beautiful word picture he says encouragement is like a like a pebble thrown into the water while there's an immediate impact the the ripples continue indefinitely or we could put it another way both paul and david jeremiah are saying encouragement begets encouragement the church this church needs to be an encouraging place now, now, sometimes the best way to illustrate a principle is through telling the story, and that's what I want to do this morning by introducing you to the life of a man in the New Testament whose given name was Joseph. But to those who knew him best, he was known by a nickname that they had given him, Barnabas. Now, that, that name doesn't mean anything to our current day years, but for those who gave it to this friend back then, it was a term of endearment. Acts 4.36 clues us in, about this name's meaning. It says, Joseph, a a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. What a beautiful way to characterize someone whose family likeness was always about being an encourager. Now we first meet Barnabas in the midst of a powerful description of the early church living in community. Acts 4:32 through 35 says that all the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions were their own. But they shared everything that they had, and, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put them at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And then in the very next verse, it says that Barnabas, Mr. Encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. You know, encouragement can be a fairly abstract concept, a little bit like love. But we say that both encouragement and love are best described as as verbs. Or another way to put it for us would be to ask the question, what does encouragement do? Now, this first introduction to Barnabas shows us already that that encouragement gives generously. Now, I'm curious, when I read this story, about where this idea of property selling got started in the life of the early church. Whether it was just some kind of spontaneous thing, or since Barnabas gets special mention here, if he might not have been a primary instigator whether his generous act might have planted the seeds for what quickly became a, a dramatic communal crop of shared encouragement. Times were challenging for the early church. There were many that were poor, and there was a soon-to-becoming persecution that was going to make financial hardship even greater. But, but Barnabas was the kind of man who did something about it. He demonstrated his generous spirit by acting on it. There are a lot of people in life who have the means to give encouragement. but They just never do. They may even talk a lot about caring, but they never tangibly put that caring into practice. From our recent study of James, you remember these words. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. That's from James 2. Or Eugene Peterson puts it this way, God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense. So when's the last time you saw a need and met it, had the means to help and actually gave someone something? When's the last time you blessed anybody with the precious currency of encouragement? My second ministry was up at a church in Indiana. I'd been out of college and seminary only a short time, had a first child, typical debts, uh, young in life, didn't make much money. We weren't starving, but most of what we had went to buy essentials and, and to pay off bills. But there was one dear couple, quiet and unassuming in the church, who knew what little we had and did something about it every year that I lived there in a very special way. During the summer, he and his wife always got center section season tickets to a professional outdoor theater down in Indianapolis. And they'd always give me seats to one of the most prominent performances, sometimes two. They usually say something like they'd already seen it or they had something else on their calendar that they needed to do that night. And that might have been true, but, but I think It was really more of a Barnabas kind of thing that they were doing. What was rightfully theirs, they graciously gave up so that I could generously be blessed. They wanted to encourage me. I could never have afforded the tickets on my own and being able to see Broadway-type stars of that day like Richard Harris and Robert Goulet on stage up close and personal. It was a gift hard to calculate for a musical theater-loving young guy like me. It's been well over 35 years since those tickets were given to me. But the good feeling that that generous act of encouragement created, it's it's still alive in my heart. More than once I told Lou and Irma that what they did was too generous, far too generous, but they always just humbly insisted it was something they wanted to do and were happy to do. No expectations, no strings ever attached. In fact, you wouldn't even know about it and their generosity without me telling you. But what a sweet gift of encouragement. A couple of weeks ago on a day when I was feeling a little bit down, my wife came up to me in my, in my office study and, and she was bringing in the mail and she handed me this card. And inside, uh, the card, it just said, Hey guys, we wanted to do something to let you know we were continuing to remember you in prayer. Since we can't enjoy a meal together, please treat yourself on us. And there was an encouraging check enclosed. And after I read the card and I looked up at Carol, we both had our own share of tears in our eyes. You see, encouragers give, and often quite generously. Now, it's not always the size of the gift that matters, but generosity always conveys something about the heart of a giver. It adds felt depth to encouragement. So let me ask you, do you have stories like that that you can tell from your life? If so, it takes you little effort to recall them, because encouragement sticks with us over a lifetime. And there's something contagious about giving, something about how one generous heart encourages another heart to give and eventually sometimes can inspire a whole community to become encouragers. At least that seems to be the description we have of this generous community within the early church that we find in Acts 4. Remember how the text put it? They were all of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. And all of these gifts had as their ultimate motivation God's generous giving. Verse 33 of the text talks about how with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace, his giving was so powerfully at work in all of them. After a section in his second Corinthian letter where, where Paul was encouraging the church there towards generosity, he had these words at the climax. He says, you show your gratitude through your generous offerings to your needy brothers and sisters and really toward everyone. And meanwhile, moved by the extravagance of God in your lives, they'll respond by praying for you in passionate intercession for whatever you need. Thank God for this gift, his gift. No language can praise it enough. Or the NIV captures the final doxology in this way. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. When it comes to the encouragement of giving, giving. The gift of Christ trumps every offering. What Christ did moved Barnabas to give, which then moved others to give as well. Never underestimate the worth, the the transforming power of a generous gift of encouragement. But Barnabas Barnabas didn't just give generously. Follow this story only a short distance further in the book of Acts, and you find that his encouragement also believes, even riskily. There, There was a man named Saul later to be named Paul, who was wreaking havoc on the life of the early church. He was a devout Pharisee, radical religious leader among the Jews, and he'd taken it upon himself to do everything within his power to bring the church to its knees. In fact, he'd helped preside over the execution of the first Christian martyr, a brave young man named Stephen. Commenting on a great wave of persecution that began that day, Acts 8 3 says, that Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both women and men and put them in prison. That is until chapter 9 details a remarkable, miraculous meeting that this chief persecutor of the church had with Jesus. A meeting that would change Saul's life forever and turn him from being this deadly menace into the church's most daring missionary. But not everybody in the church was ready to believe that someone who had so fiercely persecuted the church could turn to become a genuine preacher of the gospel. In fact, when Saul came to Jerusalem where the church had its beginning, it says in Acts 9.26 that Saul tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. And then it adds, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul had seen the Lord and how he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And it led the apostles to welcome and invite Saul to actually come in and stay with them. Now I wonder if Saul would ever have been accepted into the Jerusalem church if Barnabas hadn't been willing to believe believe in him, to stand up for him. What's that old adage about a leper not being able to change its spots? What you've been is what you forever will be. You're branded for life unless there is someone who is unwilling to write you off, to think that you could change. If Barnabas hadn't believed in Saul, where might that have left him? Where would it leave countless souls who've lived hell-bent in the wrong life's direction until finally some life-altering encounter with Jesus? It's easier, for, easy for us to look at this whole story now with 2020 hindsight and say, what a beautiful thing Barnabas did. And it was, but it was a generosity with a measure of risk. H- how did Barnabas know for certain that Saul's conversion was genuine? Now he'd heard him preach and he'd seen some of the results of that newfound faith, but he also probably had seen some of the victims of Saul's deadly persecutions early on. And who's to say, as some suspected, that it wasn't some clever ruse on Saul's part to infiltrate the church community, gain acceptance, and eventually get the whole lot of the church's leadership into prison or worse. There are some people, though, who, who by nature seem to be doubters, who are far more likely to believe the worst rather than the best about people. Prove yourself to me, they insist, before taking even any risky step towards believing in them. To put it bluntly. Some people can be such discouraging souls. Always preferring cautious safety rather than even ever the slightest measure of risky trust. Has there been someone in your life at some point who risked believing in you? Or someone that you risked standing up for personally? Barnabas said, I vouch for him. I stake my credibility on this man, Saul, being someone who has genuinely changed. But there's more about Barnabas' willingness to, to take risk. Risk once may be an exception. Risk twice, it's uh, maybe a little bit more like a persistent pattern. In Acts chapter 10, following, something radically begins to happen in the life of the early church. There is this Roman army soldier named Cornelius. He's a Gentile someone who's outside the, the racial lines of Judaism. And he receives a personal communication from God. And Cornelius sends a message to one of the early church leaders, the apostle Peter, who's also received a fresh word from God as well. Now, Peter's not real sure what's going on here, but he responds that Cornelius is, is welcomed into the to the family of faith. And a radical thing, a radical thing begins to happen. The good news about Jesus begins to leap outside long-established boundary lines. Gentiles believe and are baptized too, and the church becomes a culturally and racially integrated community. You can't underestimate how radical a move of this. It would have been almost like our country's decades-long of desegregation taking place almost all at once. In Acts 11.22, it says, when news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, the fact that the Gentiles were coming in, when it reached Jerusalem, a church set deep in the very heart of the most Orthodox of Christian, of Jewish tradition, they sent Barnabas to Antioch to check it out. There he is again, this great encourager, a standout among all the ranks of possible folks who might be sent to check, th- check things out. Why choose Barnabas? Maybe because he was someone who didn't always play it safe. It says of Barnabas, when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. And then follows this remarkable description of Barnabas, this son of encouragement. It says that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Isn't it amazing what the risky faith and encouragement can bring about? Well, after this revival had broken out in Antioch, Barnabas could just as easily have risen to the ranks of leadership even further. He maybe could have even claimed a healthy measure of credit, leveraged his great spirit and name, perhaps even become uh, the bishop of Antioch. But what did he do? Acts 11.25 tells us, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Rather than thinking about himself, he runs to get another player, a bigger player, to join his team. Or to put it another way, his spirit of encouragement is further evidenced in this way. He serves selflessly. Now, Saul had been threatened in Jerusalem despite the acceptance eventually by the church leaders there. And so he was at risk on both sides, the church and in the the Jewish leaders. And they finally speared in him away. And he went to Tarsus to work in what would be a, a safer venue. And now Barnabas thinks of... Paul, and and they began to forge an amazing missional partnership. They become this dynamic evangelistic duo in Antioch. Uh, Acts 11.26 puts it this way. It says, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Barnabas brought Saul even further into the game. Sometime later in Acts 13, it says that through the prompting the Holy Spirit, the church in Antioch set apart, commissioned Barnabas and Saul to go out from them as the church's own missionaries. And these two together began to take the gospel into the whole world. In the early historic record about them, they're always referred to as Barnabas and Saul, the son of encouragement, always given top billing. But as their further journey unfolds, the leadership gifts of of Saul become all the more prominently noticed. On the island of Paphos, a sorcerer confronts them, and Saul takes him on full force. And it's an electric confrontation, and Saul's strength as a leader is obvious to all who witness the encounter. And Paul becomes the star. In fact, it goes on to say in thirteen, chapter 13, verse 13 from Paphos, Paul and his companions set sail. Barnabas is even longer listed individually on the ship's manifest. It's now just Paul and these anonymous ones, his companions, that are with him. And in almost every mention from this point on, Saul, or soon to be called Paul, is given first place in the building. It is now only Paul and Barnabas. My son studied in college to be an actor, and he still longs to be one where he lives in New York City. And one thing he learned early on through the, through the trade that he shared to me is, is about the significance of the way that actors' names are placed in the credit lines. There are very strict, established rules that dictate how a name actually gets listed, the size and place, because it communicates who's most important, or at least who's getting paid the most. Barnabas slipped out of top billing, but didn't care. I love how one preacher describes this marquee changing moment when Barnabas willingly ex- accepts this obscure billing after Paul moves on to center stage. He writes, With this strategic investment in Saul's life and career, Barnabas secured forever his secondary status in church history. And I love him for it. Barnabas willingly fades into the shadows. He is not a man addicted to praise. He doesn't crave the the limelight. Or as someone puts it, he demonstrated that he had enough humility, that he didn't have all the gifts, and that there were things that other people could do better. He had no ego that needed to be stroked. Sometimes the best player on the basketball court wouldn't be the best player player if he didn't have someone selfishly feeding him the ball. For Barnabas, it wasn't about who got the credit for the score. For him, it was more about securing the missional win. For a lesser man than Barnabas, dealing with the emergence of Paul into a much more prominent role would have been a game-breaker, but not for our man whose nickname was the encourager. If a church were full of Pauls and empty of souls like Barnabas, very little would ever be accomplished. You might even argue that a Barnabas within the church community could even be more, or at least as vital, as Paul. That truth may seem especially proven to be true as we turn to the last mark of this encouraging man's life through the way that he restores graciously. On Barnabas and Saul's, uh, Paul's first missionary journey, there there was a young man, named John Mark, who joined them, at least for the early start of the journey. Acts 13.13 gives us the first notice, but the whole incident gets really painfully summarized in Acts 15. When Paul proposes to Barnabas that they go back, second journey, to visit the brothers in all the towns where they would preached and to see how they were doing. Barnabas agrees, but he says that he wants to take along John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and he had not wanted to continue with them in the work. Then it goes on to say that he, Barnabas and Paul, had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took the deserter, Mark, and sailed for Cyprus and Paul chose as his companion to go on in his missionary journey, Silas. Paul and Barnabas were cut out of a different cloth. One was a a type A, hard-driving, strong-willed sort of leader, and the other was a more tender people person, not just concerned about getting a job accomplished, but encouraging all of those who were on the team. Paul had no patience with young John Mark, while Barnabas was determined to give him a second chance. Paul had already given John Mark an F for his final grade, while Barnabas had graciously just offered him an incomplete. Why had Mark gone back home on the first trip? We're not told. Perhaps it was sickness, maybe homesickness. A lack of strength, spunk, who knows? But whatever the reason, John Mark left to go back home. And Paul would, it seems, never be able to forgive him. He should have toughed it out, he should have pressed on, not cried about how hard it was. Most of all, he should never have gone home to Paul John Mark was a deserter. I wonder- I wonder how many how many people continue to fail in life, not because they're unable to succeed, but because no one believes in them. No one encourages them to try again. It's interesting that one of Satan's titles is the accusers of the brothers and sisters, Revelation 12.10. One of the devil's primary goals is to ruin our reputations. He finds no greater joy than in pointing out our failures. Remember how he became a critic of Job back in ancient days? Oh, he's only faithful to you, God, because you pampered him with such rich blessings. I don't think he's nearly so strong as you seem to think he is. He'll cry if he's hurt. He might even quit believing in you if things get bad enough. We don't need more accusers, but more encouragers of the brothers and the sisters. Don't you agree? I guess I've gotten a little easier on people in my later years. Perhaps it's because I've seen a lot of stuff in people's lives that have made staying the course difficult for them. For some, it may have been growing up in a home where no one ever thought they could do anything with all of life painfully fulfilling that sad expectation. Or maybe something frightened you or distracted you or caused you to question the cause. I don't know why John Mark headed back home. He may not have had any good or mitigating reason. Maybe he just turned and ran, cried and said, I can't keep going. But for Paul, that desertion for whatever the reason was too much. But for Barnabas, a man with a far different heart, he saw it as an opportunity for for redemption. Someone has said, people tend to become what we think them to be. They either live up or down to our expectations. Barnabas was the kind of man who believed that people are able to change or to be changed. And he was patiently and graciously willing to wait. Christian psychologist Clyde Nairmore shares a story about a boy named Tom. Tom was all smiles as his high school English teacher handed him his corrected assignment. This is excellent work, it read. Tom glanced at the remark several times, then carefully put it in his notebook. And after class, the teacher stopped him to say, Tom, you are a very good student, and you're going to go a long way in life. Have you considered going to college? Up until that year, Tom had been on a starvation diet as far as encouragement was concerned. He'd come from a dysfunctional family. He was shuffled back and forth from one home to another. And much of his time in high school had been spent hanging out with a gang of near delinquents and underachievers. And the furthest thing from his mind had been going to college. But that year, he had an English teacher who never failed to keep encouraging him. The years passed. And Tom, married, had a family. And when you know it, he became a college English professor. And he said, as I look back, I attribute my success to that high school teacher. When she first began to encourage me, I felt happy and a, a little embarrassed. No one had ever encouraged me like that. And and before the year was over, I felt like I was really worth something and that that somehow I would like to go to college. What if Tom had never had someone like that English teacher? What if John Mark had never had Barnabas? You know, it's interesting to note that after the tension field split between Paul and Barnabas, you never find Barnabas' name ever again in the book of Acts. I'm sure he didn't drop off the face of the earth, but he, he did seem to leave what little place he'd ever held in the limelight. But had it not been... For Barnabas, there well may have never been an Apostle Paul who wrote at least 13 books of the New Testament, arguably the greatest theologian and evangelist of all time. And then there's John Mark, that young fellow who ran home for whatever reason on that first missionary journey. But after traveling with Barnabas and getting his life back together in that encouraging companionship, most, most think... He finally ended up, Mark finally ended up, with the Apostle Peter, from whom he heard firsthand all the stories about the life and ministry of Jesus. And it also was this same John Mark who wrote the New Testament gospel that bears his name. Though it follows Matthew in the order of our current New Testament collection of books, most think it was actually the first account that was written of Jesus' life and ministry. I wonder how many might never have heard about Jesus without Mark's gospel and Barnabas's encouragement of Mark. Even Paul developed a more tender heart toward Mark over time. He was writing to Timothy from a prison cell in Rome, anticipating that his time of death might not be too far away. When this once quick-to-judge Apostle Paul wrote these words, Get Mark and bring him with me. Bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry, 2 Timothy 4.11. John Mark's usefulness had been graciously restored by an encourager named Barnabas, who had stubbornly refused to give up on him. The book of Acts is principally dominated by the lives of two great apostles, first Peter and then Paul. But in my estimation, there's someone else every bit as important, even though his story is is far more obscure. When he was born, his parents called him Joseph. But as he grew up and profoundly impacted the lives of those that are around him, his friends came to call him Barnabas, the son of encouragement. James Crawford says that in the Christian community, we need and want both Paul and Barnabas types. But then he adds, a few Pauls are plenty. But we can never have enough of Barnabas. There's a story uh, that Andy Hansen tells. He wrote an article in the Christian Standard a few years ago he Andy was the head of Christ and youth for a number of years, and he describes one of the most powerful spiritual moments that he ever experienced. He was at a retreat where students had a poster board that was tied onto their backs, and everyone had a pen in their hand and the students spent about forty five minutes. Writing comments of encouragement and love on the backs of others. They shared observations about the uniqueness of each person, how they were appreciated in Christ. They encouraged one another with a vision to do great things for the kingdom of God. And Andy said it was, it was a holy moment where the Spirit of God incredibly moved in the lives of these students. So much so that many of them sat with tears streaming down their faces as they read and reflected on what had been written on those cardboard pads that had been hanging from their from their back. In this often lonely and personally isolating time in which we're living, we desperately need to embrace the powerful, encouraging spirit of Barnabas. I wonder what kind of nickname people might give us after watching how we live and relate within the community of the church. What could be better than to be known as a son or daughter of encouragement? Encourage one another. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for for how you have blessed us and how the gifts of your life have been so richly poured into our lives. And I just pray that as we've uh, thought about this really important relational uh skill that we need to practice with each other, that you will give us, give us hearts to be like, be like Barnabas. If there's, if there's somebody in their life that we can touch in a, in a powerful way this week, God lead us, prompt us, to do that for them. Thank you for all you give us. Most of all, the gift, the encouraging gift of your son in whose name we pray. Amen.